This episode, I dare something completely new for the podcast. In the last episodes, we had examined the life and work of Archbishop Anna II, the city ruler of Cologne in the second half of the 11th century, one of the most notorious archbishops of the Cologne Middle Ages. This episode, I would like to take a more general look at this turbulent time, the second half of the 11th century. Which developments shaped this time, medieval Germany, and what to extent they affected Anno and also the city of Cologne. But all that would be far too complex for me. So I'm glad that Dirk from the History of the Germans podcast was kind enough to stop by for this episode. In our little chat, we start off by talking about our motivation, why we started our podcasts, and then go straight into the action, the second half of the 11th century. And I promise you one thing, Dirk's explanations are extremely valuable to better understand this period for Cologne. For example, you will learn why all these monasteries and churches are being built that we have covered so often in the episodes before, and why Anno really decided to kidnap young Henry IV in Kaiserswerth. Don't miss it, and most importantly, listen in on his show, the History of the Germans podcast. Let's get started right after the intro. Yeah, thank you very much, Dirk, for joining me here on this little chat we have about medieval Germany in the 11th century. Welcome to our little chat. Hi. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to uh, come on to the history of Cologne. Great. Yeah, as I told you, this is the first time I do such an interview like this. And, oh, now you are getting even more pixel-like. <laughs> but as long as we can hear each other, I think it will be fine. Yeah, exactly. I think it records on both ends, so it'll be fine. Yeah. Dirk, what was the goal of your podcast when you started? Or what is your goal? Or what's, what's the passion behind it? What's the passion? I mean, it's sort of, you know, so it all started you know, with a with a dinner. So I had a dinner with a couple of friends. So I live in, in England and I I met these English people. We had dinner and so somehow we ended up talking about history and about German history. And, and I realized essentially in England, there is a very detailed knowledge of the battles of the Second World War. There is a little bit of understanding of what happened in the run-up to the Nazi regime, but there is practically no information about anything before that. I mean, maybe 1871 to 1933, a little bit, but then it really, it, it peters out. And it's actually, you know, as I'm doing the podcast, I realize it's much worse than that. There is literally no English language stuff about the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th century in Germany. It's um, it's astonishing. And I feel there's a huge, there's a huge gap. And it's, you know, history has always been a passion of mine. I've always been been excited and interested in those. And I, I, I do like all these stories. And I felt there is a, there's just something missing here that, you know, that, that I think people might benefit, might enjoy. Um, and it's also a nice way for me to sort of reconnect with, with my culture, with my, my, with my background, given that I'm, you know, living abroad for, for, for a very long time now. Um, and so it sort of started um, during lockdown, like probably a lot of other podcasts. Um, and it's it's going fine. I think it's you know lots of people seem to like it. So um, I feel like it's worthwhile persisting, and um, and I draw an enormous amount of enjoyment from it. You know, amongst other things, meeting people like you and other podcasters or uh, academics in the field. Um, it's which is, you know, is really, really enjoyable. And um, yeah, so I'm probably going to continue for a little while longer. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? What, what made you do this? The funny thing is I know nobody will believe me. I planned this before lockdown. <laughs> and I think I, first of all, I've started, I think, in 2019, in July, during a summer vacation. We had a horrible... Um, Vacation apartment. I always want to say holiday, but it's a vacation apartment. Mm. And uh, that's when I came up with the idea. But first of all, I thought I have to read like all of Cologne's uh, ancient time, you know, like the Romans and 
starting all that. And then I thought, no, you have to have at least like six episodes about uh, the history of Cologne uh, for the podcast. And so I started producing those six episodes. When I published the first episode, I think it was at the end of January 2020. <laughs> the lockdown came and it looks like I'm just like everybody else who started a podcast during lockdown. <laughs> My goals are pretty similar like yours. Cologne is a city that is, I don't think it's very famous, but not un, but not totally unknown. But if people think of Germany outside of Germany, most of the people think of Oktoberfest in Munich or of the Reichstag building in Berlin and, of course, of the Nazi time, which also is very much dominated by Berlin, Prussia, and all those um, funny little men that um, participated in it. Mm. And it sounds arrogant, but Cologne, in my opinion, is the only city in Germany or maybe even across the Alps that has been a big city continuously throughout 2,000 years and has such, mm. has such a rich history. And that is mostly unknown. Even by Colonians, they always think Cologne is only uh, football or for our American listeners, soccer and <laughs> coach beer and carnival and nothing more. Or, and it's, it's much more. It's really, now I'm losing... <laughs> My train of thought, but <laughs> no, but I, you know, I think I think it's it's a it's a fascinating thing you're doing because, you know, if you think about German history, German history is not you know a, a straight line in the way that you know French history is, where eighty percent whatever happened happened in Paris, and you know, or, or yeah. British history where eighty percent that happened happened outside England, and a little bit that happened in England happened in London, um, and in Germany everything happened. You know, it's basically it's an agglomeration of lots and lots of histories. Um, and the history of Cologne is probably one of the more interesting um, uh, ones because you know it goes back to the ancient Rome, has a huge importance in the Carolingian period, in the Ottonian period, and then throughout you know all the rest of history, you know, and you know all all the way into you know Konrad Adenauer and um, and the the Bonn Republic. So you know it's I think you you know. I think you say you call it a microcosm of German or European history, and I think that is exactly what it is. Um, and uh, you know, I sort of envy you to a degree because at least you know you know exactly what you're going to talk about at any given point in time. Um, I know that you know by the time you know uh, Conradine's getting beheaded by in, in the market square in Naples in 1268, I'm I'm out in the high seas. <laughs> All sorts of stuff is going to happen because the history will. You know, have fragmented so much that you know you. It's very difficult to contain the strain um, that leads you all the way to to modernity. So, uh, so I think you're you're doing a very smart move here. Yeah, and one thing I also like about history when I can literally touch it, and mm. despite the destructions of World War II, it's amazing how much stuff is still there. Most of the time, you can't see it because post-war architecture consumes it like like a Roman watchtower that is in the middle of a big traffic junction and is used <laughs> as a yeah as a restroom by some people who are lazy without to find. entering on the inside <laughs> yes and yeah that's also what I love about and uh, about the city of Cologne that you can still walk around touch a lot of things of course many things have been rebuilt all are Romanesque churches that are mostly a thousand years that were destroyed in World War II, but they have been rebuilt, all of, well, most of them, one of, one of it was not rebuilt, but that's another topic for another time. <laughs> but as you said, the history of Germany is so defragmented in the long run. And in this little chat we want to do, we will find out why. And there's one step to, that leads to that defragmentation of history. Mm. So, would you like to continue to that part? Yeah, let's go. Let's go and talk because I think you want to talk about Anno. So, what is really coming short in my podcast so far? Because I'm always talking about kings, emperors, bishops, and how the city looks like is things that are on a larger level, like spiritual life, for example. It develops rapidly in Cologne in the in the early Middle Ages, we have a lot of monastery, parish churches, 
the old Cologne Cathedral is established. We have uh, so-called Stifte. I don't know how you call them in your podcast, but like I, monastery in the light version. Yeah, yeah I call yeah. them monastery in the light version. Mm. And those must have shaped, and I know they shaped, daily life in a big way. And it is assumed for Cologne that at least like 10% or 20% of the population in the high middle ages is working directly in those spiritual institutions. And of course, there are day laborers and servants also working there. So what are the developments here in the events? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think, I mean, it's, it's, you know, as, as a, as a, as somebody living in the modern world, uh, one of the most difficult things to understand, I think, about the medieval world is is the importance of religiosity. Why does all this spiritual stuff play such an enormous role? I mean, you know, if you look at the resources that go into it in terms of, you know, the churches, the, uh, the abbeys and so forth, um, that's where basically people spend their money. And if you, I think if you think about it, or the way that I try to explain it to myself is um, you're, the background of all medieval history from about 900 and something to you know the, the the early 14th century is one of a perennial economic boom you know you you have a massive growth in agricultural production if you look at you know the time of henry the fowler you probably get about 3 grains out of 1 grain seeded so if you take your harvest one third of your harvest just is the seed for next year um, by the time you get to the 14th century, you're looking at one to eight, one to ten, or even even higher numbers. So you have a massive improvement in agricultural production. People have more to eat, and if you believe in things like the Maslow pyramid of human needs, you start at the bottom. What you want is food, drink, shelter, um, you know, a little bit of belonging. Uh, but as you sort of grow up and, you know, more and more people come into uh, a position where they can do what, what's called self-actualization, they can do the things that they want to do with their lives. You know, today people probably want to whatever, sail across the Atlantic, do a lot of yoga, become podcasters. Um, <laughs> yeah. What they wanted to do in the Middle Ages was they wanted to go to heaven. That was the primary objective. And... Um, and as more people move into a position economically where they can spend time and resources on that objective of going to heaven, you suddenly get developments where people say, well, you know, we want a priest. Now, in Cologne, that's not a problem. There's a priest in every street corner. But if you are in a village, you know, you, you probably need, uh, you, you probably get a priest once a year coming around um, uh, to say mass and, you know, do all the necessary baptisms and so forth. Um, but so you, you know, your first question is, I want a priest. Then you say, I want to have a good priest. I want to have a priest who's um, who's actually read the Bible, who understands the Bible and don't make all this stuff up. So he needs to be able to read and write. Um, and, uh, you know, and then you come to the next level, which is, you know, where the whole thing becomes quite theological and, and, and problematic, which is the question of, well, is the priest that's coming here, is he actually a valid priest? Um, and one of the problems is uh, what the church uh, calls simony. So simony is the idea that you buy a church role. It comes back from the Bible, uh, the sin of Simon, who was actually quite a decent guy. He just wanted to be a better preacher. So he asked Paul whether, you know, Paul could sell him the, the secret about how to do all the, you know, these miraculous baptisms he did. did and, and Paul got really upset about it. Um, but the fundamental problem for you know, the person in the 11th century is the guy who's coming here calls himself the priest, you know, has he bought this position by, because, you know, he gave some money to the, the provost or, 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 the, um, uh, or the bishop? And then the question is, is the bishop actually the real bishop or is he only become bishop? Did he only become bishop because, you know, he bought it from, you know, somebody else? Um, so, it's 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 basically like you go to a Taylor Swift concert um, and you've bought a ticket and you go there and you're not quite sure whether the ticket is the real ticket or whether it's the fake ticket. And the worst thing that happens is you come to the gate with your ticket and they tell you it's a fake and you have to quickly get another ticket for vast amounts of money or you might never see the concert. So 
people really cared about that. And it's not, you know, this is not coming from the top, from, you know, popes, bishops telling people to uh, to believe these things. This comes from the bottom up. So for me, the important starting point of all the, we call the investiture conflict, conflict is the Paternia uprising in Milan. So poor people, Paternia is basically, is, 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 um, is torn clothes. So these are, poor people who rise up and say, we want to have, we expect better from our archbishop uh, and from the whole clergy that is in our city. Um, and this uprising is is a significant chunk in the story about um, the um, uh, the uprising because the church is then sort of trying to co-opt um, this this movement into, um, into their politics because obviously Milan is an important city and the emperor has power there and the the Pope has power there, and the Archbishop has even more power there. Um, so it matters. But the, the 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 undercurrent of all this is the people want better from their clergy, and that goes all the way to you know goes to the Reformation. You know, it drives things like the Abbey of Cluny. It drives the Cistercians. It drives the Franciscans, uh, and all these um, monastic orders. You know, they you know for 50, 100 years, they are, you know, proper priests and they, you know, they they stick to the celibacy and so forth. And then too much money comes in and this discipline is a bit too painful. And then they all descend into uh, uh, debauchery. And then the next one comes up and uh, uh, the next um, uh, type of um, uh, monastic order tries to do the same thing uh, and, and struggles. But I think it's important to understand this is this is one of the big drivers. And then the other two drivers are um, the um, the papacy, um, mm. and uh, you know I think in particular when we talk about Anno, it's important to understand that he doesn't act purely out of um, his um, his 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 personal power interest, but also in the context of the role of the papacy and the um, um, the the drive towards a better quality of clergy. Because what's going on is, is by, if we go back to the Council of Sutri, that's about sort of 1043 or so, which is Henry III has three, per, you know, goes to Rome, wants to get, get crowned um, emperor and finds that there are essentially three guys who claim to be Pope. One is Gregory oh VI, who's, bought the papacy, and this is the one case of genuine known simony, um, who bought the papacy from, I think, Benedict the Ninth. Benedict the Ninth has become Pope because his uncle was Pope. Um, and he basically he became Pope. You know, a day before he was Pope, he was a non-consecrated knight um, and a um, basically an aristocratic thug in Rome. And then in the middle is some other dude who's also um you know has zero interest in pastoral care these are all aristocratic romans who use the papacy as part of their power play so henry the third comes down and says this is all nonsense um and deposes all three in one go and replaces them with um his own uh, bishops. I mean, the first two die very quickly, but Leo the ninth, his cousin is is the guy. Um, he Leo the Ninth completely reformed or reforms the church, invent or creates the College of Cardinals, um, brings in people with genuine, you know, theological background. You know, Saint Peter Damien, uh, Humbert of Santa uh, uh, Silver Candida. All these guys essentially start bringing the moral authority of the church back that has been completely lost, and for a long time the. The papers, the, the the emperor very much supports that project. You know, his his mm -hmm. job is because there's this undercurrent of people who want better clergy. He puts himself at the forefront of that movement and says, "Look, you know, I'm I've reorganized the papacy. I'm making sure you know that many of the monasteries are getting better run. I try to find you better archbishops." Um, Anno is actually part of this because Anno, as you as 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 you say, quite quite. Um, uh, eloquently explained in the podcast is is plucked from lower nobility and rises on meritocracy. He's a competent 
administrator, but also he's a competent theologian and uh, um, a supporter of the reform program. So he brings these kinds of people in. Um, that's what the people expect from the emperor. And when we get to, you know, towards sort of the coup of Kaiserswerth, uh, the, the, the story before that is that um, I think it is 1059, but don't kill me if it's 1060. Or At, at some point, um, the Pope Nicholas II, I think, dies, and um, who's another reform pope, the reform-minded uh, uh, cardinals elect another reform pope. And um, the, um, the archbishops and bishops of northern Italy find the whole reform thing a little bit tiresome because, you know, you're no longer allowed to have your wives and children running around oh, the no. Episcopal <laughs> Palace and all that. It's very irritating. Um, and, um, and so they start to push for an anti-pope, Honorius III, or the Cadre, I can't remember exactly his name. Um, and th the problem now is that Agnes endorses the anti-pope. So now suddenly the empire, which was at, before that, at the forefront of that, pub, you know, this, this movement that people wanted to improve the church, suddenly endorses the reactionaries, the counter-revolution, -re um, the guys who are on the wrong side. And for Anno, I think that is, that for me is the story of Anno's uh, coup in Kaiserswerth. You know, sure, he wanted to embellish and strengthen the Archbishopric of Cologne. But underneath this is also this whole story about, well, Agnes is essentially crashing the empire against the wall. We have an empire. The, the the point of the emperor is is almost as much a spiritual role as it is a temporal role, and so by endorsing this, you know, anti-pope, the guy who doesn't not want to reform the church, uh, she essentially diminishes that role, and ultimately, um, you know, it's it's a it's a political conflict where Anno is. Well, he's on the right side of history. You know, that's what, you know, the, the development over the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years is, is the rise of, you know, the papacy and the reform of the church. And um, and she she's trying to stand against it. And, and the reason she can do it is because she's the guardian and the regent of Henry IV. So Anno needs to get Henry IV in order to turn the policy around. The only problem is it doesn't work in the end for him. Um, oh no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I've been I've been talking nonstop now for <laughs> ten minutes. That's not quite. That wasn't quite the plan. Po apologies. A historian talking all the time. Uh, I can't <laughs> can't relate to that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Rarely ever happens. <laughs> yeah. Those were really really great additions to my Anno episodes because what I tried at the end to explain is Anno is not the bad guy. He is always in Cologne, in the city of Cologne, always depicted as this evil dictator that was chased out by an uprising in the city and came back and then punished the people and, you know, blinded them and um, whipped them. Uh, which, which is interesting because I always thought he was reasonably popular because I think, I mean, Anno as a first name, the only place in Germany you find Anno's in the first name is Cologne. Oh, yeah. Well... <laughs> Interestingly, I don't know anyone who is called like that, but maybe <laughs> older generations like from my Yeah, okay, it's it's, it's not the most popular name anymore, but I, you know, if you look back in it, you know, I don't know, it's um it it it's just struck me that it's one of the few names that, you know, that that seem to be if somebody's called Anno, I would automatically assume he's from Cologne. So. Yeah. Well, other names of uh, Cologne saints are quite popular still like Severin. Yeah, yeah that's true. But uh, as I really try to say, is really Anno is not a really bad guy. He he acts in the in the borders of his own mind and his beliefs of that time. And I think it's really interesting if you go to the uh, neighboring town of Siegburg. Well, it's not really neighboring, but it's close, just twenty minutes uh, of a car drive from Cologne. 
the picture is totally different. There he is in a new shrine that was made in 2021. <laughs> they gave him now in the 21st century, they gave him a new golden shrine with a really modern design. I really love it. Uh, I described mm. it really quickly. His shrine is a little golden box in the middle that seems to float in a dark chamber of the monastery church in Siegburg. And around it is a house. And the house consists of letters of his biography. Oh, and wow. it really looks, looks amazing. If you don't know that, uh, Google that up after we done this recording it's really you don't have to be pious or not i don't ask you that but mm. it's really i think if you're pious or not doesn't matter it looks really amazing mm. how modern uh, religion can be displayed or or maybe not oh. yeah. <laughs> so i know this is a really broad question and you already got into that a little bit like you know there's more grain available because of better um production methods, but what is the general political, social, economic situation in the second half of the 11th century in the empire? Maybe just throw in some bits. You don't have to talk for <laughs> hours about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you, 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 you can easily talk for a couple of hours on that. But I think what, what you see is... Um, you know, as this boom progresses um, and more resources are available, essentially population grows dramatically. The it allows for the emergence of more and more, you know, principalities, if you like. So, if you look at you know the 10th century, you look at somebody like Margraf Gero, who acquires land that you know easily accommodates um, what will future be in the future be the Kingdom of Saxony, Brandenburg, most of Thuringia. Blah blah. So, but um, but you know, as we go into you know, literally a hundred years later, we already get into viable territorial uh, entities um, that are much smaller in terms of size, but have uh, roughly the same uh, uh, amount of resources. You then have um, you know the um, uh, we have the beginning of the um, uh, the great clearing of the forests. So when the Romans came to the Rhine, they took one look at it and said, this is all forest from here to basically, I mean, if they knew, probably to the tundra. You know, there is literally just one tree after another. Um, and, um, you know, what you get around this time is the monasteries in particular, you know, get a plot of land and then they start um, uh, pulling down the trees and create agricultural land. So you have this growth of, you know, particular uh, the, the, the monastic houses, uh, but you also have cities starting to grow and and uh, communication lines to open up that been broken, you know, since since Roman times. Um, it's it's a, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's what you expect of an economic boom. I mean, it's not quite like China uh, uh, the last 40 years, not quite at that breakneck speed, but it is a significant uh, increase in, in wealth, in city life, in um, road uh, connections, in particular also uh, water transport, which is important for, for, for Cologne. Um, and so as that happens, you know, you get more particular interests. And what is uh, the big shift in, in German politics or domestic German politics is if you remember, the Ottonians came from Saxony, and Saxony is essentially geographically half of uh, uh, the empire. Um, not the richest half, but you know it's a very large uh, landmass, and it is um, uh, it is quite uh, separate in its history because it was actually only conquered by Charlemagne in the eighth century in a rather brutal war. They always had a feeling, you know, of being somewhat separate. And if you look at the elections, so the Ottonians, Otto 1, 2, 3, that's all fine. These are Saxons. The Saxons vote for them. That's fine. Henry II, who is an Ottonian, but he's been Duke of Bavaria and hasn't been to Saxony, they sort of, you know, they let the rest of Germany elect him, and then they elect him as well because they do elect the emperor. Um, and, um, and so there is a gradual... You know, sh shifting away of particular the Saxons from um, the um, uh, uh, the rest of Germany, but at the same time, 
the imperial if if you think about the empire so as a, as the emperor you have rights all across the the empire and then you have your own lands and the things you have under direct control and one of the most important bits of imperial control at the time was goslar and everything around goslar because that's where the important silver mines were and um what you know happens particularly under henry the 4th but already under henry the 3rd is that the emperor is trying to territorialize that land you know goslar the harz mountains um you know there's a famous castle the hartsburg that he built um which is an attempt to you know almost you know before the word to 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 have your your hausmacht your your um uh, home power as as king that you can draw on for money for uh, uh, soldiers etc cetera, etc cetera. now that encroaches on Saxony. You know, when we talk about Saxony today, it's not that area around Dresden. That's actually, that's the Margraviate of Meissen that barely belongs to Saxony. What, what it is, is Niedersachsen, um, Westphalia, you know, and, and down to the Harz Mountain. The, the heart of the Saxon duchy is Verla, which is just outside Goslar. Um, so um, as the emperor expands there, the Saxons get restless. They get ever more restless. Um, you know, there, you know, when uh, th- there were uh, uh, conspiracies to murder Henry the Third amongst the Saxon nobles. There were conspiracies to kill Henry the Fourth when he was a child by the Saxon nobles because they felt this imperial overreach is basically going going uh, at the heart of us. Uh, there's a famous speech that Otto von Nordheim, who's the um, uh, the leader of the Saxons, uh, in in many ways, he's not the Duke of Saxony, but he's the richest uh, and most powerful noble in in Saxony, and he hold, he does a speech in 1074, so towards the end of Anno's life. But um, you know, the, this is a current that goes into this, where he essentially says to the Saxons, "You've all sworn fealty to the emperor. We've all done that, but he's no longer our emperor. He's not longer working in our." Uh, in our interest he's he's moved away he's gone over to the dark side you know he's Darth Vader <laughs> now um you don't have to stick with his um uh with him anymore the oath is null and void which is an, an uh, i think is a very important moment in 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 this in, in in german political history because up until then the oath was the oath and and people really struggled and saw so found it very difficult to um, uh, to walk away from these kinds of oaths and promises that they've made. As we go into the 1070s and later, first, it's Otto von Nordheim says, you know, don't have to uh, uh, observe an oath to somebody who's not a, a decent uh, decent emperor. And then the popes start to release people from their oaths. And by, by 1220, you know, people get excommunicated left, right, and center, oaths being made, you know, um, and 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 a day later, they're they're broken. It's you know mm. this this whole medieval concept of personal relationships built on um, oath and trust and vassalage essentially collapses because nobody believes in oaths anymore. So that's the sort of we are, we are at the foothills of this development, uh, but we are at the foothills, um, and that is also one of the you know I think key drivers of the world of 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 Anno. So O's are just guidelines now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they are. Okay. I mean, it is ridiculous. I mean, they, they, you know, there's, um, it's literally, you know, in the, the the civil wars between Philip of Swabia and Otto the Fourth, these guys like the Landgraf of Thuringia and the Duke of Bavaria, they would swear to anything, you know, and then just weeks, literally weeks later, uh, turn their soldiers around and fight the other side. It's um, it's it's not the ideal of chivalry that you've grown up with. <laughs> Henry the Fourth is pretty prominent in my podcast series because of the coup of Kaiserswerth, but then he's just a teenage boy and a young male, and he will come back to Cologne nearly fifty years later or forty years later when Cologne expands its borders. You know, up until 1106, the city mainly 
remains in its Roman borders. They still used Roman city wall. They only extended a little bit to the east into the Rhine River and um, made the walls longer to the shoreline. But in 1106 or 1108, I don't know really well right now, at the moment, they expand their city in a big way. And they do that by inviting Henry IV as their king and emperor, while his son, Henry V, is already fighting against him. And they mm. use that conflict to get the legitimacy to build that wall, even uh, at the moment when the Archbishop of Cologne is still against that. So that is the time span I have. Henry IV as a young boy, and then as an old man close to the end of his life. So what happens between that? He nearly reigns over 50 years, but his reign was marked by severe crises, like you know pogroms in the cities against the Jewish population and the investiture controversy. I know big topics all, but maybe yeah. just short summary <laughs> a short summary of one of the longest and most chaotic reigns in european oh, history yeah. yeah let's just give me five minutes and i'll <laughs> i'll do that um no i think i think the important thing about uh, um the way uh, henry the fourth reign developed is all around these sort of three things that 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 i think i mentioned before is this sort of groundswell of people wanting a reform of the church then mm. you have the fact that the church itself, you know, in particular the papacy, becomes much better at what it does, and it becomes much more self-assertive. So um, you have, you know, we talked about Leo the Ninth, and then uh, uh, Nicholas the Second, and now we, you know, we're coming to Gregory the Seventh, and the Gregory the Seventh is the first sort of, if you like, power pope. Mm-hmm. Um, so he cares as much about the temporal power of the papacy and the relationship between the papacy and the emperor as he does about topics of theology or probably argue he cares much more about the first than about the second. Um, So uh, the papacy is developing this notion that, you know, you have the two swords, you have the temporal sword. So that's basically, that's the sword of Christendom um, that, Fights the the pagans with with um, uh, with with power with uh, military power, and you have the spiritual sword, which is held by the pope or wielded by the wielded by the pope, who is um, uh, is the power of the word. And um, and Pope Gregory the Seventh moves to the notion that the spiritual sword is superior to the temporal sword. Essentially, the emperor and the king has to obey them. Essentially to kiss his feet that's actually how he <laughs> says it um and um and so henry the sixth finds himself in that situation that the papacy is is growing in stature and trying to assert itself as the more powerful and he can and, and one of the reasons essentially goes back to the coup of kaiserswerth is is um when Agnes gave up the leadership of that reform project when she endorsed uh, Honorius III, essentially the public opinion in Europe, to the extent it existed, sort of shifted towards believing, well, actually, we should look to the Pope to deliver on the promise of a better church because the emperor or the empire is no longer doing it. Um, and, you know, the the aftermath of Cologne was that Anno went to um, uh, the church council that essentially deposed Henry, uh, Honorius III and established, you know, ended the schism. Um, he thought he would lead that council and he found himself within days to be relegated to the back benches. The front bench were St. Peter Damien, Humbert of Santa Can- uh, uh, Salva Candida, the, the big cardinals, and uh, uh, Pope, oh, can't remember, I think it might be Alexander II. I'm, I'm a bit hazy on popes um but um uh, essentially uh, the um um uh, the 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 ship sailed so the emperor is no longer really uh, uh, leading leading that but has to deal with a pope that is getting stronger at the same time we talked about the saxon nobles who are get going into outright rebellion and mm. so he gets squashed between these two trends um so 
and then we have this third event, which is this Paternia rebellion in, in Milan, where the people rise up and want better quality clergy. The Pope tries to send an archbishop in as the better clergy, and the emperor sends an archbishop in as better clergy, which is a fantastic idea because these archbishops obviously start hitting out at each other. Um, the whole thing escalates and it ends up in a you know exchange of letters where um uh famously Hildebrand uh, uh sorry uh um uh, Henry the the fourth writes a letter to the Pope Gregory the second the seventh whose Christian name is Hildebrand and says uh, to Hildebrand false monk not Pope um and ends with the word step down step down um didn't work that well um the Pope responds essentially by excommunicating the emperor and deposing him, which is sort of, you know, excommunication is something that happened before, but deposition, so deposing the emperor is some or a, a ruling monarch hasn't really happened before. That gives the rebels, in particular the Saxon rebels, um, the fuel to call an assembly, uh, a royal assembly, which then basically says to Henry IV, here it is, you know, the Pope's deposed you, you've got a day, a year and a day to get rid of that um, excommunication. If you haven't, we will elect a new co- a new king. This is why he has to go and then essentially intercept the Pope in Canossa and beg the Pope to excommunicate him. So he basically kneels in the snow for three days uh, until Pope Gregory VII being still Pope and therefore a priest and therefore has to accept if somebody is a true repentant sinner. He was no repentant and, uh, well, he was a sinner, but, you know, so we all. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> we all are. Uh, we, we all are, indeed. Um, so um, uh, there he found himself, um, you know, being released from his excommunication by the Pope and rushes back to Germany. But the German princes are basically now off the reservation. You know, the, even though the Pope has essentially ended the excommunication and the deposition, uh, uh, the deposition of their uh, of their emperor, they still elect a new king, uh, Rudolf von Rheinfelden. You then have civil war. Essentially, what you have is you have civil war from here on till Barbarossa, uh, which is about eleven fifty two, and it's essentially the emperor against the princes. Um, in various, there's various versions of how they basically fight each other, uh, but it is always that. Um, because the the moment they elected this King Rudolf of Rheinfelden, they established the principle that the the king of uh, the king of the Romans, as they call him, is essentially the the junior the ruler of the empire before he becomes uh, uh, crown is crowned by the emperor, um, is a role that is handed out to the um, the most deserving. So it's not a question of you don't inherit the title. You get the title on merit, and the merit is established by an election process of, at this point, completely dubious structure. But there is a um, there is no right to become emperor only because you've been the son of the previous emperor, um, and it's you know it's quite quickly becomes the established doctrine. Whereas in France, you know, which also started out as an elective elective monarchy. Um, the Capetians essentially consolidate into a uh, uh, inherited monarchy by around the same time. There's no question that if the king's dead, you know, long live the king. You know, mm-hmm. in Germany, the king is dead. Let's elect a new one. Um, and so, this is sort of Henry the Fourth, you know, story. It goes back and forth. Um, sometimes he finds, you know, there, you know, at some point he sacks Rome. It's the, you know, so probably the well. He doesn't sack Rome. Uh, he gets somebody else to sack Rome, who is actually Gregory the Seventh's ally. So he he essentially he comes down to Rome. He um, uh, he besieges the city. At some point, he gets into the city. Gregory the Seventh holds out in the Castello di Sant'Angelo, can't be get at, um, and then um, the Norman king of Sicily shows up uh, to relieve Gregory the Seventh. Um, when he arrives, his men are a little bit hungry and 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 angry. So they basically they sack Rome. So Gregory the Seventh's friends sack Rome. He has to leave 
uh, Rome. He dies in Salerno. Um, everybody hates him. Um, and he says, there I lie, you know, fighting for justice um, and uh, and the freedom of the church. And um, this is what I got for it. Um, but, you know, this is a very brief moment where Henry IV is on the winning side. Most of the time um, he gets blocked off by his um uh by his princes or um you know has to fight in italy over um, um tuscany long story that i'll skip right now um but essentially it's it's a it's an endless civil war that um then comes to an end when his son uh sides with the princes because they can't he, the son can't take it anymore he just thinks this you know his father getting increasingly irritated and more difficult to manage is um, um, uh, is is essentially destroying his inheritance. He needs to stop this. He needs to step up, get in papal endorsement for his reign, bring the whole thing to some sort of stabilization, and that's essentially what happened. So you know, he he captures his father. Um, his father still. I'm. I'm not sure whether I get that right, whether it was before or after, but definitely after still. So his father escapes from prison that his son has put him in and goes to Cologne. And essentially the city of Cologne becomes the great ally of Henry IV, who, um, um, and there's a, there's a siege, but in the end, you know, Henry IV ultimately dies um, and, um, and Henry V takes over. And at that point, you get a little bit of stabilization. So there's the conquered out of Worms, where there's some sort of agreement between the Pope and the Emperor about the future of the church and how to manage the church, which gives us a bit of a breather before the Civil War kicks off again after Henry V's death, um, because he left no no heirs. Um, but but Henry IV's reign is 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 the great turning point of the Middle Ages because it established all the things that um, you know that that is the Holy Roman Empire afterwards, which is. Uh, you know, a weak emperor, an elective monarchy, um, a drifting away of the north. You know, if you do mm. the the history of the sort of the 12th, the 13th century, you suddenly find yourself essentially writing the history of southern Germany and Italy. Um, and the north of it, um, you know, what happens in Brandenburg, what happens on, you know, the eastern uh, uh, border, you know, the growth of the... Um, um, the Teutonic Knights, all that essentially happens in a non-imperial world. Um, you know, the the power of the emperors ends on the on the Main River, um, and <laughs> um, and all these trends, I think, I think are quite uh, significant, and they you know, and they start around the reign of Henry the Fourth, um, and um, and they you know, essentially, yeah, they kick off with the coup of Kaiserswerth, and um, you know contain an awful lot of steps in between in these 50 years that leave us with a sort of very different world afterwards and a you know if if I was a 19th century historian I would say this is a diabolical outcome because Germany didn't become a state until 1871 because of all the things that happened at that time and it's all the fault of the Pope and you know it's the Catholics obviously who ruined the country Um, I think we are today a little bit more relaxed well, actually, I think if we, if, if it's always, you know, hindsight is always a, a, a weird thing, but um, it is also the time where this um, uh, federal structure of, of Germany is essentially established, you know, so that, you know, the different cities, the different states go their own ways. You have a lot of centers in Germany. You know, the history happens, you know, I think we said in the beginning, you know, in, in, in Paris, 80% of French history happens in Paris. There's no place in Germany you can say where more than twenty percent of history has happened. You know, it's 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 all over the place um, where uh, you know important events took place, and also where today you know you, you, Cologne is a, 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 a is an important center. So is Hamburg. So is Munich. So is Frankfurt. In a way that you know. Maybe in Italy you have a sort of similar structure, but in a state like France or or, or the UK, you just don't have such important centres um, that um, you know that drive the, um, the the history of the country, or that 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 you know that where where, where people coalesce and where events uh, take place. So, 
yeah, I think it's you know it's a very it's a it's a massively crucial uh, moment in history, and you know it kicks off in Cologne. <laughs> <laughs> Like all the important events, all start in Cologne. Well, uh, Clovis, the first uh, Merovingian, was crowned right outside Cologne as the king of all the Franks. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Not in Paris or Rams. I, I cannot pronounce French words. Rams, R-E-E-M-S. Rams or, or Laon. Rams. I mean, Laon was actually the capital, so um, it would have been. Well, um, no, I, I can't remember where Clovis's capital was. It's probably Amiens. Um, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I forgot as well. It's... Yeah. But I think, I mean, for all these, you know, it's very nice to talk about capitals, but basically these are just staging posts. Know. You know, you, you bring your thousand retainers over there. They've eaten all and everything within, you know, four weeks and you have to move. So. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't feed them such yeah. such a lot uh, such a large group you can't feed them at that time, yeah. and according to uh, well speaking about nineteenth century historians they also hated m many of the uh, Ottonians as well because they were too Italian, yeah <laughs> something like that yeah yeah exactly yeah it's the the, the fateful entanglement in Italy yes yeah. But thank you very much. I think with that, we really have the arch between, you know, the Kuba of Kaiserswerth and when Cologne expands its city wall at the beginning of the 12th century. So thank you yeah. very much for that and putting it in just a few minutes. <laughs> well, I think it, I think a slightly overdone the, you know, do it in five minutes thing. It's not quite, we didn't quite get there. <laughs> that was our chat about Germany in the 11th century. Many, many thanks to you, Dirk, for taking the time to share your knowledge with me. I hope to return the favor and then I will tell you everything about 13th century Cologne that I know of. Be sure to listen on Dirk's podcast, History of the Germans. He's currently at the time of this recording in November 2022, already in the 13th century, and covers the Hohenstaufen dynasty. A thoroughly exciting era, also for Cologne. I'm looking forward to getting there myself. You can find the link to History of the Germans in the show notes or just visit historyofthegermans.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks again, Dirk, for stopping by. Rate this podcast where you can. It is the easiest and most importantly free way to support this podcast. Feel free to follow me on my social media channels. You can find all that and more in the show notes for this episode. Keep well. And auf Wiedersehen.